I invite you now to open up the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read verses 10 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, you can follow along in the, uh, the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack, page 953. We are finally getting to the, the body of this letter. The last two weeks we looked at introductory matters. Uh, and I mentioned a, a couple weeks ago when we kind of did a, a survey of 1 Corinthians, it was uh, an epistle that you can outline by the various problems that Paul has to address within this church. And we get to that first problem that he addresses tonight, which is disunity, and that takes up really the first, uh, about the first four chapters of this epistle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We look back at verse... 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. We do not know who Chloe is, who her people are, or how they got to Paul. Um, but we know that they did reach Paul, and they had a report, and that report was not encouraging. There's been infighting within uh, this church that Paul initially planted in Corinth. And Paul is undoubtedly sad, but I wonder if he would have been surprised a brief um, survey of the New Testament and Paul's letters would seem to uh, suggest that Paul assumed that division was commonplace within the church because he so often speaks about the need for unity. Uh, let me give you a few representative examples. Here's where we see Pastor Paul's heart. Romans twelve sixteen, Live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together with one voice you may glorify God. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven, Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build one another up. Those are all imperatives for us, right? For you and me. I think when we are sensing disunity within the body, 
disagreements with other brothers or sisters in the Lord, we read those verses and we think, yeah, that's what they need to be doing, right? They need to live in peace with me. They need to uh, be in harmony with me. We read these passages, we think of the responsibility the responsibilities that others have towards us, but we neglect the responsibility that we have towards others. This is what Richard Baxter, Puritan minister in England, said so long ago, and I think he's absolutely right. He's writing on the, the need for Christian unity. Um, that was the title of, of, a, of a treatise he wrote. And he says, I presume... He says, I dare presume to take it for granted that all of you that hear me this day would fain have divisions taken away and would have unity and concord and peace throughout the whole world. But you little think that it is you and such as you that are the hinderers of it. I think that's absolutely right. We rarely think we're the reason that there are divisions in the church. It's always somebody else. Well, maybe that's how the Corinthians felt regarding Paul's letter. He's speaking about their divisions among you. And they said, yeah, Paul, there is. And it's these other people that, that I'm stuck with in the church. Uh, they knew things aren't going well, but they didn't think they were the problem. It's always easy to point the finger at another group in the church and blame them for schisms or point the finger at another person or individual or elders or your leader and say, well, if they weren't doing this or if they would behave differently, we'd all get along. But notice what Paul says in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's backing up this exhortation with the authority of uh, the Lord and Savior. This is about as strong as you can get for an apostolic exhortation. By the name of Jesus, that all of you agree. Not that you make some other people agree, but that all of you agree. That all of you commit yourselves to this work of agreement and concord and peace and unity. The goal Paul has here is for the Corinthians to share together, he says, in one mind and one judgment. That is to have one purpose. That they would, they would have one mission. Well, why aren't they getting together? What are they divided about? What is the cause of division? That's the first thing I want to consider with you. The cause of division Before, Lord willing, we'll get in a few minutes to the cure for division. First, what's the cause of division? And sadly, it's that in the Corinthian church, they have bought into the cult of personality. They had bought into the cult of personality. That is, they had begun to believe that the most important thing about them is the person that they followed. The most important thing was the name that they had on their bumper sticker or the name that was on the sign that they put in their front yard. The squabbling at Corinth was as petty and pathetic as kids on the playground trying to outdo one another by bragging about how uh, strong their dad is, right? That's the idea here. You know, my my dad can bench press a thousand pounds. Oh, yeah, well, my dad is, you know, beating up lions and tigers. Oh, yeah, well, my dad. I mean, is that not what you hear when Paul is saying? Some people are saying, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. It's that same mentality that you see on the playground. Well, my dad can do this. My dad can do that. David Strain, a pastor in Mississippi, says that these teachers became, quote, the grid through which they measured every other ministry and everybody else's Christian life. The grid through which they evaluated everybody's Christian life and whether or not they were faithful or faithless was who did they follow. So it's interesting, the divisions in Corinth aren't about doctrine. Right? They weren't having theological disagreements. Uh, there are no false teachers creeping in like uh, Paul will deal with in other uh, churches. 
Uh, in fact, all four leaders that are mentioned here in verse 12 are legitimate and faithful teachers. Um, Paul has nothing bad to say about them. He doesn't have anything bad to say about Apollos. Apollos is the one who, who will keep uh, coming up throughout the letter. If you flip the page, you look at chapter 3, you'll see that Paul uh, admires Apollos. In verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He, he recognized Apollos did something there at Corinth. He watered. That's good. Paul doesn't have an issue with Apollos. He doesn't have an issue with Cephas or, or Peter. The, the teachers themselves are not the problem. The way that the Corinthians are latching on to their teaching is what the problem is. And the other thing that's interesting is all four of these people would have been teaching the same thing. They're all uh, sound teachers. They're all on the same page. So they're not just latching on to their teaching as much as the way they taught, their, their, their uh, style, their personality. And so you get these different parties that have formed in Corinth. There's first the Paul party. I wonder if you belong or have at one time belonged to a Paul party. Uh, these are the stalwart defenders of what the Corinthian church was built upon, right? Paul was the church planter, and these people are standing by their original pastor. They don't want anybody to forget what they used to be and, and, and what made them and, and, and the things that they stood for. Uh, these are the good old day members who make a fuss when a new pastor comes into town and dare to something different than the predecessor. Right? The Paul party says, we had a way we do things, and it needs to be that. Well, then there's the Apollos party. Who's Apollos? Well, we find out a little bit about Apollos in, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18. We learn that he was an eloquent man. He was fervent in spirit. He was competent in the scriptures. He spoke, and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, and he eventually makes his way to Corinth, and there we're told that he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, Acts 18.25. He powerly, powerfully refuted the Jews in publicly showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Amen. Thank you for Apollos. This is wonderful. He's a skilled speaker. He's a dynamic and passionate expositor. And the church of Corinth was richly blessed through his ministry uh, but he's still the new guy, especially compared to Paul. He's the, you know, he's the cool, hip intern that everybody liked better than the aging senior minister. We show up to hear the intern preach, maybe not so much this guy we would like to retire. Uh, Paul is boring and unpolished, but Apollos, uh, Apollos is, he's fun to listen to. They liked Apollos. Well, then there's the Cephas party, or Peter, right? We're talking about the apostle Peter. What do you think united these these individuals together? What, what formed, what was the platform of, of the Peter uh, party? I think that there could be at least two things. One would be that, based on stuff we read in Galatians, Peter maybe made a, a stronger emphasis for Jewish heritage, and maybe they like that, so maybe he's bringing to Corinth this idea of, of returning to um, some of the, the Hebraic way of doing things. I'm thinking that it's probably more likely what people rallied around was the fact that of the 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 uh, names listed here, he was only, he was the only one who was an actual original disciple with Jesus. He actually knew Jesus, and so to to come alongside Peter and say uh, you're following Peter is is to say that you 
You know someone who has a connection to the Savior that makes his ministry more legitimate than anybody else. Well, either way, that party's platform is nothing. And the last mentioned, right, at the end of verse 12, I follow Christ. Now, that one's really interesting, isn't it? Because the way it's structured, Paul seems to be putting down people who say this, right? There are, I hear there are some people who say, I follow Paul and Apollos and Peter. And then in the same breath, or I follow Christ. And you kind of pause and you think, well, wait. Yeah, isn't, isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing, Paul? Why are you making it sound like that's a bad thing? In fact, I'm pretty sure Jesus said, you know, whoever does not take up his cross and I think it's follow me, right? Isn't that what he says? That they're not worthy of him? So what, does, what is Paul saying here when it sounds like he's being negative about it? Uh, well, some, some people have actually suggested that Paul is making a personal declaration. And in that sense, it would read like this. You all say, I follow Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. I say, I follow Christ. And that's what I, you know, and implicit, that's what I want you to say too. In the Greek construction, it doesn't seem like that is legitimate. It seems like this is a list here, and uh, it's meant to be read the way we have it translated. So, I follow Christ is just another option there at Corinth along with the others. I think what's more likely is that Paul is calling out those who, in response to this party spirit going on at Corinth, have just yet formed another party. This one happens to follow Jesus, but they're thinking it's in response to what these others are doing. They think this is the way to get over the issue. You all have your people. Well, we have Jesus. Um, But what does that mean? Well, that means they're not actually interested in following Jesus. They're interested in using Jesus to make themselves stand higher than their fellow church members. Kim Riddlebarger explains it really well. He says this, that, that Christ has been reduced from the head of the church to simply the leader of another faction. He's been reduced from the head of the church to being a leader of another faction. And so what is the cause of disunity or division in Corinth? It's nothing more complex than this. They were clicky. They had clicks. That's it. You know, you get them in middle school and you get them in the church. Sadly, uh, we are not immune to them here at, at community. Um, uh, perhaps we're not prone to stake our claim with a particular preaching style or teacher. Maybe that is uh, a bent that you might have. But there are any number of things that we can kind of huddle up around to the exclusion of others. And that's what's causing division, right? You find something that you think is more important than the gospel and you say, this is what makes or breaks you. And I'm going to become, uh, I'm going to stake my identity on this thing. We can do that, right? Maybe it's the kind of a schooling we promote, right? You have to homeschool. You have to private school. Um, or the, the politics that we promote or head covering, um, or maybe the, the cliques you form are around your age, or your marital status, or the hobbies you have. The list can go on, but anything that we think makes us better than others brings division in the church. Anything we think that makes us better than others will inevitably bring division. And, and anything in our words or action that says, I'm in and you're out because of this particular thing... Is nothing more than a click, and clicks kill churches. Clicks kill churches. And so are you in a click? Do you have that impulse in you? Let me answer that question for you. Yes, you do. We all do. That's just part of our fallen nature. We like to find people who, who share um, in our interests, 
That is not wrong. That is not sinful. Here comes the sinful part. We find people who share interests, and then we put down everybody else who doesn't share those interests. We exclude others. There, there's the sinful part. And so that's something to keep in mind, isn't it, brothers and sisters, as we have opportunity to fellowship with one another. After the services, who are you with? Is it always the same people? Are there others who are, who are wanting to get to know you and want to be friends with you, but they feel like they're on the outs and, and you're putting them down? Who do you sit with at fellowship meal? Uh, who do you look for when you're looking for people to interact with? Are you seeking to promote unity and harmony in the church, or might you be, even unwittingly, and I'm sure that is the case most of the time, unwittingly causing division. So, what is the cause of division? In Corinth, it is cliques. And where the cause of division is this party spirit, this cult of personality, Paul, you'll notice in verse 13, gives them three questions. And these questions are meant to draw out the foolishness of their cliques, the foolishness of this party spirit, and um, get them looking for something better, something more. So there's three rhetorical questions to point out the folly of their factionalism. So secondly, we, ca- we saw the cause of division. Here are the, the questions of division, the questions that arise from division. Number one, you see in verse 13, is Christ divided? Literally, is Christ divided? parceled out. Is Christ parceled out? Uh, No. The answer, of course, is no. The answer for all of these is no. Christ can't be parceled out so that each faction has a little bit of Christ. Uh, You either have the whole Christ or you have no Christ. You either have the whole Christ or you have no Christ. David Pryor is a uh, late British minister. He speaks of the incoherence of a common phrase uh, wanting more of Christ. Maybe you've said that. I'm sure, I know I've said that. You know, I want more of Jesus. And he says that that saying actually makes no sense. He says wanting more of Christ doesn't make any sense. It cannot be. We should rather be allowing Christ to have more of us. We are the disintegrated ones whom Christ is gradually making whole so that we can become more like him who is integrated and entire. I think that's beautiful, right? So really what we mean when we say we want more of Jesus is I want more of myself to be given to Christ. Because you have either all of Jesus or you have none of him. Christ said the point of his crucifixion, you remember, in the Gospel of John is to draw all people to himself, all men to himself, all sorts of people, all kinds of men. Not certain types, but all people are brought together as one in the Gospel. Is Christ divided? No, he cannot be. That's not the point of the Gospel. The point was to draw all people to himself. Anything less is a misappropriation of the gift of the gospel. Another question, was Paul crucified for you? I think Paul's being very polite here. He could have said, was Apollos crucified? Was Peter crucified? But he, he, he takes himself as sort of the, uh, uses himself as a stand-in for any other teacher that the Corinthians might follow. And, and he says uh, that there's such a foolishness in doing this with any mere mortal and following them, saying, you know, I'm all about Paul, I'm all about this uh, teacher, Because no mere mortal has put an end to sins. Paul didn't do that, right? And Peter didn't do that. Why does he ask that question? Was Paul crucified for you? Because he's getting at the fundamentals of our faith, the fundamental of our faith, right? Our entire faith is built upon the atonement of Jesus Christ, 
not the atonement of Paul or Apollos or Peter. Since Paul did not die for the Corinthians, why are they acting like he did? Paul's saying, I'm not that important. That's a really refreshing thing to hear somebody in leadership say. I'm not that important. And I think Paul would have heartily approved of Luther's reaction. Maybe you've heard this story when Martin Luther, the great reformer, found out that certain people were being called by his name. And we still do that today, the Lutherans. Do you remember what, Paul, or what uh, Martin Luther said in response? He says, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. Luther's saying, I'm not that important. I, I wasn't crucified for you. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not that important. I was not crucified. And then the last question, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, the answer, of course, is no. And, and this question is very similar to the previous one. Faith in the death of Christ is what brings us into Christianity, but then it's baptism into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit that brings us into the church. The church is God's people. And that's why we're baptized into his name. Right? The one who does the baptizing is not all that important at all. Uh, baptism is about our identification with God. It's not about our identification with uh, our, uh, your pastor or your denomination. Uh, that's why the Westminster Confession very helpfully asserts this on the chapter on the sacraments. It says, The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments is not conferred by any power in them, neither does the effectiveness of a sacrament depend upon the piety or the intention of him that administers it, but upon the work of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. Baptism does not point to the person who administers it. It points to the God who's making a promise in it. And that's why Paul goes on to say he's glad that, that there weren't a whole lot of people that he, he baptized, and therefore they can't point back to their baptism and say, well, you know, here's what I've got on you. The apostle Paul baptized me. He said, I'm so glad that I only, that I only baptize Stephanus, or I only baptize Crispus and Gaius, right? And then he's like, oh, whoops, I forgot another family. And then he's like, actually, I'm not sure how many more people I've done. But you see the point that Paul's making, right? I'm glad that that wasn't the aim of my ministry. What's the aim of Paul's ministry? He gives us in verse 17, and along with it, he tells us the cure for division. They're the same thing. Paul's aim in ministry and what will, what will cure this divided church, it's all there in verse 17. And the answer is simply this. It's preaching Jesus Christ. Preaching Christ and nothing but Christ. For Christ did not send me to baptize. I mean, that, Paul's saying that that's not the point. That wasn't the main focus. What is the main focus, Paul? But to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so it is a return to Paul's message, not a return to Paul that is going to fix this church. A return to his message. It's the very thing that constituted the church that will cure it. Notice what kind of preaching Paul speaks of here. He's talking about simple and clear preaching. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, otherwise or else, lest the cross of Christ will be emptied of its power. Why does Paul make that comment, do you think? 
Well, in that Hellenistic Greek culture, uh, there was a preoccupation with gifted storytellers. They didn't have uh, TV or streaming. So what you did for entertainment was you would go to the, 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 the public hall and, and, and you would sit down. You would listen to a, to a gifted storyteller. You would listen to... Um, uh, like Garrison Keillor, that's what, they, that's what they lived off of, was the Garrison Keillors of their day, right? Because they didn't have uh, TV or anything. And so um, Paul recognizes that, that that's what tickled their fancies uh, in Corinth generally, and that that would be true within the church as well. And that's what they would want in a preacher, somebody who could, could entertain them. Paul recognizes that people can like the preacher a lot more than the preacher's message. That's not a good thing. It was uh, in the 1800s. Uh, there was a woman who was blessed to have, and, and this is in Scotland, uh, the Reverend Ebenezer Erskine uh, come and, and preach at her church. He was a guest minister, and Erskine was a great theologian and, and, and minister, and uh, we have seminaries named after him now. And uh, she was so moved by the preaching. Uh, she did not know he was going to be coming to to speak, and so she just shows up at church on regular Sunday, and they have, they have this gifted um, guest minister. And so, so moved was she that the next week she went to his church. Right? She wanted to hear him again, and um, so she leaves her home church. She goes to follow the preacher that she liked, and she says it was a flop. It was one of the worst sermons she ever heard, and. Um, she went up to tell him that afterwards. Please don't do that later today. I just email me on Tuesday. Don't do it right there on Sunday night, okay? Um, but that's what, that's what she did. She said, what's the deal, uh, Reverend Erskine? You came to my church a couple, uh, last week, and you gave the greatest sermon I ever heard. And then this week I come, and, and there was nothing. And here's his reply to her. Madam, the reason is this. Last Sabbath, you went to hear Jesus, but today you've come to hear Ebenezer Erskine. That's, that makes all the difference. What are you here for? What are you here for? You see, if preaching is about the preacher's skill or ability or charm, the cross will be emptied of its power. If you're coming to hear a mere man, then you won't hear your Savior. It's not that, now when Paul says the cross is going to be emptied of its power, he doesn't mean actually that... that uh, the cross suddenly becomes powerless, but rather that people won't see the power of the cross. It will be obscured. The herald will be obscuring the view of the king who sent him. Preaching is not meant to do that. You know, when preaching becomes about entertaining jokes or quaint illustrations or feel-good stories or self-help tips, then you don't see Christ anymore. You don't see Christ and if he's no longer seen, it's because he doesn't send that kind of preacher. Uh, Paul says that he was sent, right? Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. And when Christ sends somebody to preach, he sends them so that they would see him. To see him, the sender, not the one who is sent. That they would see him and that they would hear a simple message, and Paul will tell us that simple message in chapter 2. It's Christ and him crucified. And that's what uh, that lady in Scotland didn't understand. Right? She loved that first sermon. 
Because she came, she had no expectations, and she heard Christ. But then the next week, she goes to hear the preacher. And when you go with that expectation, you're going to miss the whole point of preaching, which is to herald a sufficient Savior, even in all of its simplicity. So this is the kind of ministry that cures division. Paul's trying to bring them back to what will unite them again, and it's the preaching of the gospel. Now the question is, why is it that preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus Christ, not with words of eloquent wisdom, but just simply and clearly, why is it that gospel preaching, Christ preaching, unites a divided church? I want to give you two reasons as we close here in just the next few minutes. Two reasons uh, that this can cure division. And it's that preaching Christ does two things. The first thing it does is that it makes us Christ-centered. Right? Preaching Christ makes us, the church, Christ-centered. It brings everybody in the church back to the same page. It gets us on the same mission. It gives us all the same focus. When Christ is what, what we are taking away from every sermon, then he'll be what fills our hearts and our aspirations and our affections. The congregation will be drawn to him, not a particular preacher. Christ will be their aim. Christ will be a church's mission. Christ will be our motivation when we do this, when we make this our, our uh, mission here. He'll be our motivation for getting out of bed even on a dreary Sunday uh, morning or coming back, getting in your car again and coming back on a beautiful Sunday night. Preaching Christ creates unity because it gets us all on the same page. It makes us all Christ-centered. It gets us excited about the same thing, the same person, right? Not about um, interesting, though they may be, but secondary theological issues, right? Or um, a social movements of the day. We get excited, no, about the thing that matters more than anything else, and that's Jesus, Preaching Christ cures division because it makes us Christ-centered, but the second thing it does is it also makes us Christ-like. makes us Christ-centered, but it makes us Christ-like. That is to say, gospel preaching does something that nothing else can do, and that is it changes hearts. It changes our hearts. It conforms us by the Spirit's power to be more like the Savior who is being heralded. It's actually a, a... a supernatural thing that's taking place in this very ordinary, you know, somebody just walked in, they see what's going on, and we say, something supernatural is taking place right now. My heart's being changed. They're like, no, it looks like you're sitting and just trying to keep the kids quiet while that guy up there is talking at you. We're like, yeah, and my heart's being changed through it. How? The Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the word to convict sinners, to convert sinners, to build sinners up. This is, why, this is how he does it. Uh, why does he do it this way? So that nobody else can boast in the presence of God because it's such a simple, ordinary act. We can't say, well, it's because of all the work I put into it. It's because of all the money I gave to it. No, it's because I sat there and the Spirit opened my heart to receive his message. And my heart's changed. So now I become more like Christ. And that makes us more unified. If we're Christ-centered, we're on the same page. You see how divisions would melt away? Well, when we're Christ-like, now we handle divisions differently, don't we? If we have the mind of Christ, if we have the character of Christ. Here's what a recent book on church culture said. It says, the doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. In such a church... The gospel is both both articulated at the obvious level of doctrine, like preaching, 
but embodied at the subtle level of vibe and ethos and feel and relationships and community. And in a gospel-shaped church, for starters, people are honest in confession, they bear one another's burdens, and they seek to outdo one another in showing honor. And so do you see how people who live like that would also live as one? Do you see how that can only come through preaching Christ and nothing but Christ? And preaching Christ in a way so that people actually see Christ in simplicity and sincerity. Not in eloquent words of wisdom, but they see Jesus and they, they see his heart. They see his character. They see how he was meek and how he was humble, how he was gentle, how he was compassionate. And then those virtues are infused into their heart by the Holy Spirit and, 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 and they're conformed into that character more and more so that now as they face people who have differing views, they're meek, they're gentle, they're compassionate, they're humble. That is by God's grace what I hope we do here at Community. I know it is certainly my aim and I think if I could distill Paul's appeal in these verses down to a single sentence and leave you with this single sentence, it would be this. Don't believe in your pastor, but believe your pastor when he points you to a greater Savior and a better Lord than any mere man ever could be. So don't believe in this person up here, but believe what he's saying and who he's pointing you to. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for the gospel and how it does have the power to change our hearts and to bring unity where there otherwise was division. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray that we would make him and him alone our aim, our mission, our motivation as a congregation, that he would be heralded clearly, plainly, convincingly from this pulpit, whoever is in this pulpit. And would we, as one body, be able to say, we are with him. We are for him. We are indeed one in Christ. Make it so, we pray, for his sake and our witness to this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.